Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. So today, I wanted to discuss about something that is quite new. Is about the use of behavioral science to help culture change at work. And one of the th reasons why I wanted to discuss about it is because uh, I was reading and then suddenly I saw an old 2023 survey by Pricewaterhouse saying that 72% of executives believe that the organization needs to improve its work culture. Um, but then there is a little bit of, uh, of another number that came to my mind is the fact that only 30% of corporations are capable of being successful in changing their culture. I mean, whatever is the reason, and, and we are going to discuss about the reasons, I wanted to have someone who knows about the, the world of behavioral science and who knows also about work culture. And by the way, I have to say it openly. I've been attending a wonderful seminar from Jacqueline Kerr, who is my guest today. Uh, it was about work culture and change. And I, I must say that I have learned much more than what I, I was expecting. I, I, I believe that I knew a lot, but I think that it, my ego had to be a little bit reframed thanks to Jacqueline. Now, let me tell you more about Jacqueline. Jacqueline, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Kerb, in fact, she has a PhD in, uh, in behavioral science. Uh, she also is a burnout survivor. She is one of the top 1% of the most cited scientists worldwide. And the, the reason is because she has published more than 200 scientific publications and edited a book called The ABC of Behavioral Change, A Guide to Successful Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. Um, that takes a lot of effort. 200 scientific publications. I must say that mm, that was there was a price to pay, and maybe Jacqueline is going to open up a little bit about about the topic. Um, she also quite. Hmm. She's also quite famous because of her TED talk regarding how to stop burnout before it starts. Um, Listen, Jacqueline, I'm so glad to have you with me. Uh, and, and first of all, let me dig a little bit more about 200 scientific publications. That seems quite a lot. What happened? <laughs> Tell me a little bit more, Jacqueline. Thank you so much. And yeah, it's actually not necessarily the number of citations that that um, puts you in that top 1%. The, 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 the metric is about how many people cite you. So how many people find what you have published useful in their work? So I'm just delighted by that, that, that other people find what I'm doing helpful and that it guides them. So similar to you, I'm so glad that I was able to share some um, knowledge and, and um, best practice with you that you're like, oh, I didn't know that. So that, that would be what I would love for, for all my clients is just to bring them something um, that they didn't know and to also get them more curious about this whole process. So um yeah, thank you for recognizing that. And I think there's another piece of this that I think is so important as we think about our careers and having impact 
I haven't published in um, a scientific journal in the last um, probably four years now because I um, left academia five five or six years ago now. And um, but my work is still being used and these citations keep increasing on their own. So I think sometimes we forget that actually when we put something out into the world, it continues to spread and have ripples, even though we're not really, really working hard at it all the time. Um, so I, I, to me, that was such, I, and I share that often with some junior faculty, is it will start to like have its own power and and be spreading of its own accord. And, and I think that's the, the magic that culture change can also bring. I, I guess that, Having this type of, of work is almost like having little investments that grow upon the time. The more it becomes well-known, there is somebody else who will do a research and then they are going to find something that Jacqueline said in one of her, uh, of her research. It is like an investment for the longer period, a little bit like the 10 years period, it grows naturally. Jacqueline, tell me, this story about uh, the passion that drives uh, your wish to, to, to spread knowledge. Uh, and I mentioned the fact that I attended even your seminars, which for me was quite eye-opening. Um, how did you start this? Uh, how did it start this passion for behavioral, the use of behavioral science? Yeah, so um, I think I've always had a passion to change the world. And I don't know where that came from. Ever since I was a, a, a little kid, that's always what I, I, I wanted to do. And even as a 10-year-old, I was like voted in school as prime minister for the day because I stood on a platform of no school rules, right? So I was always trying to change the system. <laughs> and um, so, so that was something I, I, I have just sort of started from. Actually, my transition into um, behavior change came from um, the perspective of health. So when I first left university, I was in advertising for a number of years, and I was basically seeing that you can persuade people to, to do things through that's what advertising is. But I just didn't want to do it for these commercial products. And actually, um, one of the products that I was working on was a, a drug for heart disease um, from a pharmaceutical company. And I learned a lot about how they were not supporting anybody with um, exercise or healthy diet. And I could see how much power they had as a pharmaceutical industry. Um, so that actually led me to say, actually, I want to go into the science of how do you support lifestyle change instead of drug change. Um, and I just became so excited by um, doing research, running experiments, finding solutions. Every research question led to another hundred questions. There was always something more that I wanted to know. And I think that's one of the things I just have this passion for lifelong learning and the curiosity to, to keep asking questions. And I think that's so important um, for, again, where we're going with culture change is to be very curious, to be asking those questions. Why is it working? Why is it not working? I mean, you know, this is a, a process of finding out what, what works and you have to find out what doesn't work in that process. Um, so I think that helps. But the, then this was really at the heart of trying to um, improve people's health behaviors was very much 
behavior change science. And I've seen that change over the years from the models when I first started that frustrated me that assumed that it was all about us making rational decisions and, and that that would change. And our awareness of something, knowledge was going to change um, what we did. But, you know, people knew cigarettes would be bad for them, you know, uh, 50 years ago, but it wasn't wasn't changing their, their behavior because again, there was so much pressure from the industry or our environments or a lack of policies. So um, that's really what I learned in this process is how we are just, um, what we do as an individual is so informed by all the multiple layers around us. So yes, as an individual, you could um, try your best to give up smoking, but if everyone around you continues to smoke, if everywhere you go, the cigarettes, if they're, they're cheap and, uh, you know, there's, advertising everywhere and it's socially acceptable, then it's very hard to have your own willpower to do those things. So that's where I really try and put behavior change within this multi-level model of understanding the barriers. Because actually behavior change is about overcoming barriers. That's the biggest thing that we need to do. You know, those first few months or weeks of behavior change, you have a lot of control over and you can do a lot to help yourself. And then you start to hit all these different potential barriers. And so that's the biggest skill that you have to succeed in behavior change is overcoming barriers. So recognizing where they come from and at all these different levels of society um, is so important. So to me, they're sort of these, these two things are, um, there's almost like two sciences that, that come together. But I think one of the other big um, scientific changes we've had is in behavioral economics. And that's where we really start to understand we are not rational beings. We have all these cognitive biases that affect how we make behaviors or decisions, sorry. And um, we have to understand those. And obviously a lot of companies now are thinking about the biases we have um, that are racial biases, for example. But we have so many cognitive biases. Of course, they're unconscious. They are our brain's way of making us make decisions more quickly to keep ourselves safe. This is, you know, an automatic shortcuts. But we have to become aware of them so that we can do things differently. But just knowing that we have them doesn't mean that we change them. And mm -hmm. that's why you need so much support to change, um, you know, your behaviors and you need um, policies and practice around you to, to make those things actually happen. So, you know, we know this now that all the unconscious bias training in organizations not only is not working, it can actually lead to worse outcomes because you think, oh, I've sorted that. I've, I recognize my bias. Now I won't have them. And that's not the same as developing bias interrupting interventions where you actually have to develop the habit of, um, you know, changing how you think and, and changing how you do, what you do, how you respond and the decisions you make. It's quite amazing that the wealth of applications that behavioral science has, has today, because you mentioned, for instance, a little bit of the marketing side, nudging people to buy things that they need or maybe not. <clears throat> you, have, uh, you have mentioned something that is related more about the, um, the, the development of uh, diversity and inclusion the biases that we may that we may have um you you made me think about uh, about this professor in stanford veggie fox that you are probably you are fully familiar with with that this guy in fact started selling its theory to 
Instagram in order in order to uh, to make people stick to stay in in that application for uh, for the long uh, longer time. So there is a wealth of of ways that behavioral science has been growing. And the, the funny thing is that 12 years ago, almost nobody, I'm pretty sure that you were talking about it 12 years ago, back then, I didn't even know about the applications of behavioral science. Maybe in the area of economics, as uh, as you said, it, it was already uh, known. Now, and coming back to the to work culture, work culture, it, was, it, it, it wasn't even named five years ago. So, and, the, the, the question that I have and is burning me is that can really behavioral science be used in terms of organizational culture in order to solve certain of the challenges of behavioral science, uh, of, of culture? We know that there is always in, in, in the uh, structure of culture, there is a, a certain, certain number of beliefs, uh, behaviors, actions that, that, that we do, and these actions are, can be repetitive. We continue doing what we have always done. And that is what we call resistance at the end. It's like, it is difficult to get rid of it. Uh, how can, uh, so can really a behavioral science solve most of the challenges that we have in organizational culture? Right, yes. So uh, I see that culture is the the sum of our behaviors, right? Because again, we, we can't, you know, beliefs, you can't see the belief, but the belief may be driving the behavior. But again, um, we can change behaviors without changing beliefs. So I love the example is, um, you know, in hotel rooms now where we have key cards that turn on the lights, right? And then um, when you take them out, you leave and all the lights go off. You are saving electricity, you're contributing to reduce climate change. You may not believe that, but there is a default system that made you do that and it made it easier. So that is really the basis also of behavioral science. How do you make the behavior as you want the easy choice um and so i also think about it too that all our decisions so when you think about policies policies are simply the decisions that a person has made they're not they're not impersonal things like we think sometimes of systems of being machines but actually it's people so people make decisions that that create policies and then people decide whether they're going to enforce those policies or not. So making decisions, enforcing policies, all these things to me are behaviors. They come back to what is the person who is doing that thing. Um, so for me, even when we think about behaviors, um, uh, you know, when we think about other things like beliefs and systems and we think they're not behaviors, they're actually driven by behaviors because behaviors are simply what we do. They're the actions we we take, whether those actions are decisions or actually, you know, coming into work or working from home. You know, there are, there are so many things. Um, so I, I definitely think when we draw upon behavior science embedded in this um, multi-level model, we can actually make a difference because behavior science isn't just about individual change. It is about interpersonal and team change. It is about organizational change and it's about social change too. So, you know, you have to change behaviors to create the, the more behaviors that spread, that become the social norms, that drive the decisions you're making, that drive what is acceptable behaviors, and that then create those systems. So for me, it is all 
and sort of has that catalyst of of behaviors. But when I think also about um, changing an organization, there are also change processes that make a difference. For example, are you empowering champions in your organization? Because having a network of champions who are actively spreading these new behaviors or supporting these new behaviors makes a difference. Again, are you aligned with collaborators so that there's um, a bigger bang for the buck? More people are trying to go in the same direction and you've got more people working together. And then, you know, are you also involving people in shared decision making? So this comes back to like the power of social learning. And again, we all individually improve our behaviors when we have more people around us supporting to do those behaviors, trying to change them at the same time. So again, people think that the world changes one person at a time. It actually changes when we all get together in networks and support each other to change. So, yeah, I definitely believe that that all comes back to what are the behavioral targets you're trying to work on, because those are the things that people can then do today. They can grasp, right? Like, what is the behavior you want to do? Um, for example, saying we're not going to have meetings between a certain time. We're going to just have meetings 10 to 2 in the day and we're not going to have meetings the rest of the day. That sounds like a, a, a policy, but it's a decision that everybody has made to allow you to have flexible work time so you can take your kids to school, more focused time. These are, at the end of the day, behaviors. Jacqueline, there is two things that now are turning in my head that I find quite interesting. What you what you define a kind of of virality of beha behavior. So that if a little bit of people starts doing a single behaviors, that with will have a ripple effect in the in the rest. This virality, interesting. This is super interesting. The other thing that you made me think, and it's a philosophical question, is thinking. So is there you mentioned so Sometimes you can drive a behavior even if you don't believe on that. And then it made me think, so in this case, all these guys, people who are saying, you have to be a genuine leader, uh, you have to be yourself. In fact, no, we have to work it out to be the type of leader that we want to be. It's not like, if I am a little bit stupid, I have to show myself completely stupid. I have to work out to, to shape a little bit my rough angles. So is that what it means that there is... This genuity of uh, being genuine doesn't really exist in psychology because you are always shaping the rough edges or being influenced by others? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And there's two questions in there. One, the, the virality thing. And again, we all assume that virality comes from like our big influences. We all remember the heroes of change, like who drove that change? And the example I love to read, uh, love to cite. And, and so you can think of it as were these fireworks that's that 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 just a single thing going up into sky and lighting up the sky and changing everyone. That's naturally not how change happens. That's how we like to hero worship people who are changing. But even Rosa Parks, who changed where she sat on the bus and refused to move, the reason her name is remembered, because many other Black women were doing the same thing at the same time. 
she had a stronger network of advocates and activists around her who then spread her message, spread her action, actually leveraged it to do things with it. So actually change happens from a network. It's like a fishing net and it can happen on those peripheries of a network. So when we all think about it's the CEO, yeah, CEO support helps, but it can Buddy has a power in these networks, and it's actually those networks that spread the change much more than a single person. So I think that's really important to to ask. So then the question of um, yeah, what is what is the most important part about um, leadership and and um, you know, authentic leadership. Again, the, one of the things that annoyed me so much was when somebody said, we just need compassionate leaders. And I, I hate that word just, it's the Nike just do it. And there's never something simple. So I'm like, oh, it made me cross. I was like, what does that mean? I'm listening to this podcast and literally saying, what does being a compassionate leader actually mean? mean in terms of everyday steps what does being an authentic leader actually mean because again we need potentially boundaries we need emotional intelligence and we're supposed to regulate our emotions sometimes it, i mean you can't just sort of go completely um so again it's it's what are the the um behaviors that that are going to serve you and serve the others around you to come to the most effective um, point because people talk about something like engagement and when you have these engagement surveys at work and for example the Gallup engagement survey has a question somebody in my workplace cares about me well what does that mean what does that look like is that that they do a one-to-one check-in with you once a week and actually ask you how are you doing personally um does that mean somebody asks about your life outside of work and also role models their life outside of work does that mean you have a wellness plan at the same time as a career plan like what what do these things mean so i i agree with you that some of these words like be authentic Mm. I, I mean it's like they're so hard to define um so it's like what are the behaviors that that a ceo or a leader should have that um brings out the best in their employees and those are often um behaviors where they show um their own vulnerability show themselves struggling making mistakes, learning from mistakes, those things are very important. And so sharing something about yourself and your life and your struggles can give others the permission and confidence and safety to also then do the same. Um, so there's that side of like authenticity that I think is really important. Um, yeah. But yeah, it doesn't then mean, you know, <laughs> Say whatever you want, whenever you want, because if you're authentically an asshole. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> Jacqueline, I, I, I want to use my biased brain to imagine your mornings starting at six o'clock and reading at least 10 research about behavioral science. <laughs> my day doesn't start with 10, but uh, at least a little bit of reading. Uh, but let's say that what are the latest trends that we are having in this area of 
behavioral science applied to work culture today. In the last, let's say, two, three days, three years, sorry, and, and especially because of that COVID has accelerated quite a lot the number of research on behavioral science, especially applied to for the mental health challenges that we still have, despite everything uh, that all companies have. Um, so what are the latest trends that you feel are going to shape the future of behavioral science on uh, applied to work culture? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is um, that we we have forgotten the the human in in a, a lot of these things. So so as we know, there are lots of tools that we can use and technology that we can use that um, can help things to scale. But um, what I'm seeing in sort of the, the behavioral health sciences, there's a lot of companies who, who are using gadgets, who are using AI and automatic things to try and do behavioral health um, as, as companies. And those companies are struggling because what they didn't haven't haven't understood is, um, and this was research that that I did, um, you know, over ten years ago, where I learned from my participants when I actually then went in and asked them, is you know, would how does this type of um, you know um, technology support? What does it make you feel? What does it make you think about? You know, how supportive was it? And their response was. If I think it's a computer behind it, then I don't think anybody cares about me and that's not gonna keep me accountable. So this is part of the problem of the scaling is we need humans in these systems too. So yes, th there's there comes a point where there's some nudging and there's some automatic things that we can do, but we need humans in that system. And I think that's what I think um, is, is one of the things that, that um, companies have, have lost sight of um, because again, humans are always going to be sort of that expensive part. So I think that's yeah. gonna come back. Yeah. Um, I'm also seeing just that they're um, very much behind as we were 22, 20 years ago in behavioral science, thinking it's about education. So again, taking something like unconscious bias training, a one-off education and thinking that is going to change things. So again, as companies start to realize what is not working, um, I believe that they'll then start to actually understand what habits are, uh, are happening. And, and some of that research, see, that's what I feel. Some of this research is coming out of um, the um, health sciences too, because we have a lot of racial bias in the um, healthcare system. And so, for example, we're trying to address that by developing habits in caregivers, in healthcare providers, um, and, and then realizing, yes, this has to happen every day, all the time. How do you do that? It's through um, habit formation. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I see that as the thing, because if we don't have um, consistent long-term change in organizations, then, then there is no culture. But also everything's changing so quickly. I mean, hybrid, AI, um, you know, the, the even, even sort of decisions in the US, for example, is the Supreme Court decision against affirmative actions is basically changing the landscape of DI. So, so everything's changing so quickly. So again, I think that's the other part that we have to get 
um, much better at developing change management skills in our leaders, for example. And it was crazy. Recently, Qualtrics came out with a report saying that change management was a really underrated um, skill by HR leaders. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. <laughs> I was like, but that's what you need right now is to lead change. And then Gallup also came out um, with, with two statistics. One was saying that 98% of HR think they're leading change and 63% of employees say they're not. And so, so they don't think it's happening. Um, and also that if you show you can lead change, then employees were less likely to burn out. They felt a greater sense of community and trust. So being able to lead change to me is like one of the future leadership um, uh, skills. And then the last one here to throw in was that only 8% of employees thought that um, leaders would take action on a survey, an employee survey. And so leaders are stuck in inaction right, right now. So I think that the key to this is really about learning how to, to lead change. And, and that comes back to, um, yeah, learning how, how behavior science, learning how people change, how systems change, how things change, and then being able to, to lead people through that. Um, so that's what, what I very much see as as being the way forward. Jacqueline, you have triggered my little devil and I'm thinking about all the bad moments with human resources people. Anyways, so they have progressed. <laughs> Let's accept it that they have progressed. But what is still unbelievable is that more or less 50% of human resources people come from a background in psychology. And this is the least applied skill in the job. And they... And of course, even for you mentioned the leading leading the change as, as one of the one of the accountabilities that most of the time falls into uh, into human resources, it, it hasn't been that successful. And maybe the reason, uh, as you mentioned, is the fact that it's not a shared, um, a common goal, and leaders should know that because they speak the language to influence others, their people. Human resources looks like the psychologist giving me adv advice about how to stop uh, one of my bad uh, vices. Uh, uh, so it's, it's not credible enough. Something else that you have mentioned is the fact that, yes, um, in order to, um, to influence change, we need humans communicating that the today technology, and even if it was high-end technology with good artificial intelligence that looks close or familiar to uh, um, uh, to humans, uh, still we have this barrier because it still didn't have the experience. We like the fact that we are talking face to face and sometimes I will see some emotional reaction, some maybe some of your failures, some of your wins, and we are going to be happy. We're going to be sad about this, the same things. And that connection, nothing can, it's not about that. I do believe that humans can do everything, but I do believe that our brain has been biologically formatted to feel close to same type of, of people. And the third thing that you mentioned is about training. Yes, it's incredible, right? The corporations have been investing tons of millions of dollars in, in repeating acquisition of knowledge instead of acquisition of new behaviors. And 
the hell that makes millions and millions that have been thrown out out of the window it is time to change uh, especially for the number of skills that we need that are more human you cannot just teach them with the slides and uh, and big logos uh, moving uh, and moving animations so thank you for triggering that moment of uh, uh, emotion yeah <laughs> and 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 so i think two things i take from from that is again this is about ongoing support i agree you you and and the more we can teach leaders and co and, and managers to to understand what it's like to be a coach support rather than an authoritarian leader tell somebody what to do make them compliant control them this is about how do you empower other people to make decisions to problem solve and support them in their goals support them in their behaviors so i think that's that's one of the things but i think the biggest issue that i see HR being sort of the the mismatch is again like you said it's like them telling you solve your own problem fix yourself first fix your vices you're the problem right and actually what employees keep saying is we want to change how we work you know when somebody goes away like you and I and we um spend time working on ourselves, trying to recover from burnout, for example, when we come back and we know that we've done our work, we come back into a work environment that hasn't changed. And, and so that's the thing. It's so important, not only that um, we don't expect people to, to fix themselves, because again, in, in the US and in the environment we're in, when that's say related to something like mental health, that continues to lead to greater health disparities because that individual approach is not um, accessible, culturally appropriate um, for, for many people. Then they go into a healthcare system that already has these, these you know, very well-documented racial biases. So you're just telling them to go you know, face all those barriers again versus saying, actually, we as an organization can change how we work to be more supportive and you know I, whether it's like that that organizations don't want to admit their role in this um let's just start to work on the the new behaviors that we want to show and to making the changes you know i i think again these things are complex so nobody has to stand up and say you know, it's all my fault. I take responsibility here. It's really complicated. So let's not try and, um, you know, sort of assign blame, but instead move forward and say, yeah, there is always an interaction between who you are and where you work. That is how we behave and belong in the world, an interaction between ourselves and the environment. So, but it's then basically finding workplaces that are the best match um, for the for the the or, or giving people jobs that match with what their strengths are and that's job crafting which we know has like research evidence as being related to um, greater engagement and job satisfaction etc so th there are strategies whereby we can really you know help individuals to be um, their best selves at, at work um, so this is, you know, this, the, the, it's, it's a combination of it all. Uh, Jacqueline, you, you, 
it was just resonating in my head the typical comments that I that that I have heard is like, yeah, but that requires too much effort. Uh, I, on top of my accountabilities, I'm not going to be just the the, the listening guy of my. 10 direct reports. I will not have the time to, to do that. Um, so it's almost it's almost also a case for behavioral change because it's almost like we don't believe that we have the capabilities to make that change. And so how do we expect it from the organization? Already a leader should be able to, to believe that he's capable of learning that skill and to still manage because it doesn't mean it's an additional work. It is embedded in the in the in the flow of what you do every day. It's not like a big change. It's not an allocated time. It is it is part of how you do things. It's not an additional goal that you have to achieve. Anyways, that that uh, that's another right, thing. right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and again, so how do we teach skills that make people feel capable? Again, we know this is by having um, role models by groups doing these changes together at the same time, struggling together through it, and by developing confidence, then mastery. And confidence comes from gradually doing it in more difficult situations. So you can't just expect somebody to go from zero to 100, jump in and be the best listener every day. That skill has to be developed, supported, and, and gradually developed in, in more difficult situations with more difficult conversations. So... Yeah, there is definitely a way to do this. Um, you, you just said it gradually. People expect that I attend a training of two days and then I know how to be an active listener. No, that's impossible. It is gradually practice, feedback. I do mistakes. It's fine. I, I'm learning. Anyways, I wanted to to get back uh, to, to the core of the topic and, and, and you know that it's all about growth hacking culture, this uh, the uh, this podcast. So, and I, I wanted to imagine this scenario. If you had a magic wand and you were the chief culture officer in a Fortune 500 company, what would you do first during the first three months? How does it look like your day, your days? Thank you. That's just such a wonderful question. So. The first thing that I do, and actually the US Surgeon General even said this, he said, get rid of the stupid stuff first. So the first thing I would actually do is get feedback from employees on all the current solutions and then work out which ones are we wasting time and money on. Let's get rid of the ones that are not working. Let's stop those draining our energy. And in the process of me asking employees what they think of the existing solutions, I am going to learn so much about what are the, actually the solutions they need. If I if they have no solutions and I ask them what they need, they don't know what they need. But in the context of solutions that aren't working, they're actually very informed users and can give so much information. And again, showing them I'm making decisions based on your feedback. We're de-implementing these things. So again, often we think about when we have to do something new, that that's going to take more time and energy. So I can't promise to make change because it would take me doing something new. If you listen to your employees and stop doing something, like there's no extra energy involved in that process, right? That doesn't take time. We just say these solutions are working. We're going to stop investing in them. You've still been responsive to your employees' feedback. So that's definitely number one. Number two, 
finding my champions and collaborators. And I'm going to reward and upskill those champions because those are people that can spread my change that are so passionate about this, but they're burnt out because they're, you know, working with without um, reward, without pay for doing those tasks. And they're possibly doing it again in the let's educate, let's have affinity events type mindset, say ERG leaders, um, let's do events versus let's change behaviors. So again, giving them those skills and then finding, as I say, who are the collaborators that my agenda aligns with their agenda. So together we can make progress. What are the like three for one? So I always say that if I'm working on reducing bias, reducing burnout and getting rid of bad bosses, those are the three bases for my culture change. Then they have benefits for mental health for wellness for engagement for di for leadership development so that's what i'm looking for a long-term vision is so important so starting to lay that out because employees need to know that you are committed to this long term right and that there is a it's worth them investing in it because you have a plan. You have the steps. They may change along the way. You'll get feedback, et cetera. But you, you, ha you, you have a long-term vision that you're committed to. Then they think it's worth buying into that. And the more that they have information and, and have a shared decision-making about that, the more invested they'll be. Um, and then the last thing is to start immediate experiments around behaviors where we can actually start doing something today. Doesn't matter if they're total failures, we are starting to do something, starting to experience like what would work, what would not work, starting to change that mindset around experiments of what we do to learn. Um, and that way, again, people can start to um, see what works and, and start to have immediate success. Because that's the other things about behaviors. You can start them today. You can start to monitor and track them today. You can easily see that they're happening. This is not about a belief that you can't see every day. You can see, observe, report behaviors every day, start to track them. And then you actually start to say, oh, I have control over this. I can make progress on this. So those would be the the four things that that I really start to to do. It seems to me that that one of the first things that you would do is almost like get it get get rid of the dirt. So these drainers of energy act activities that we do and the type of people who are a little bit uh, a little bit toxic. Uh, uh, Jacqueline, I, I was just and this is because I'm thinking loud here. So. And it's also for me sometimes the big question mark. In order to see if there is success of a change, or let, let's say a cultural change, or or some new activities that uh, that are supposed to improve certain dimensions of of culture, do we as a CEO do we have to go and buy expensive, I don't know, surveys, poll surveys, or should I just? go gut feeling talk with people and get to know what what are we better at collaboration are we better at, at having bosses who are more have more empathy what should i do i buy my expensive survey or should i just go around and have like a mini sample uh, inside of the organization yeah that's such a good question so i think that um the sort of 
the big surveys have their role in terms of being able to track things over time and to potentially show us patterns, but they're not necessarily even designed to measure change that is a meaningful change. And even if we have data, data isn't actually always motivating. So if we want to motivate more change, what motivates change more than data is story. So I totally agree. Go and talk to your people, get those stories. And I recently had a, a client that said to me, um, you know, the people that responded to her survey about um, the initiative she'd done at work all said it was great. So any survey response was showing this, what we call social desirability, trying to make the person who asked the question feel good about themselves and feel comfortable. She then had side conversations with people and actually discovered th the people that weren't using it, that didn't want to complete the survey because they hadn't enjoyed the experience, they weren't engaged. That was where she found out so much more information. So we can do these things very informally too, because again, somebody has to feel safe to be able to tell you that it didn't work for them. And so you, as the person going around asking, Sometimes it shouldn't be you. If you're the person doing the initiative, you actually need almost like an external third party who people feel that they can trust with the information and give it anonymously. That is definitely one way to do it. But again, a cheaper way is for you to go and say, hey, I thought this was crap, this part of this intervention. What did you think, right? You've got to show that you didn't think it was <laughs> brilliant too. You've got to say, I think this part of it didn't work. I, in fact, I didn't like that part of it. What do you think? Because you have to basically show that you're open exactly. to learning from mistakes, that you want, um, you know, constructive but but negative feedback too, um, and that you're going to respond to it. You're going to actually make a difference because of it. Because, again, if people tell you things and you don't act on them, they're going to stop wasting their time and energy to give you feedback. So it's so important that we make feedback a part of this cycle. And again, we can do very quick, we call them rapid response interviews, where you're literally looking to see, is there any problem with how this intervention is rolling out? Because then I can do booster training, or I can address the issue straight on. So not waiting to the end to find out, oh, it went wrong. <laughs> five days in, you know? Um, so that's the thing is having your finger on on the pulse of, of change as well is so important. Um, by the way, curiosity, do you believe in this type of like um, type of on the spot surveys where you're giving a little bit like Uber, giving the stars, okay, Jacqueline is more <clears throat> into collaboration or more em empathy driven or whatever. So that at any time that we can give each other like stars, do you believe on, on, on that it, this is a good way to take the temperature on the key behaviors or the type of culture that people are working on on, on a specific moment, giving each other stars for certain dimensions of, of, of culture, like give you five stars for collaboration, give you three stars for empathy or, Right. I, I, I think there's definitely um, some benefit in us having like that 360 degree review of whether we're doing yeah. the behaviors because we could be doing the behavior, but it's, you know, but if we're, if, 
it depends how it's being received as well. So we can think that we're being empathetic, um, but actually it's not being received in that way. So I, I definitely think that, um, and, and it's like, we call that triangulation as well in like qualitative research is triangulation. Does every Does the person and the people around them say the same thing so I think that's um there's definitely an accountability perspective around that but one of the best things too for um change is and and this example that I like to use comes from surgery so back in the days you know some a heart surgeon would be going in doing all this um really complicated heart surgery sew the patient up and they'd left a sponge inside the patient they would have to open the patient back up and Find, take the sponge I mean it, like just causing so many problems so what they actually did is gave them checklists to say are you doing these behaviors and those checklists not only meant they didn't make mistakes they meant that they felt more confident they were doing the right thing and it made them remember to do the right thing so I think there's so much power in that um so in in having systems that that create the internal motivation to keep doing well i think is important um and again obviously if we're being if our behaviors are being reinforced and rewarded by others that can be helpful um again if it's all negative and we don't know why i, I think that's where it can be um we have to be careful about um providing feedback in a way that they can action upon it. So somebody just saying that they get a one out of five on empathy, like, well, what do I do next? Mm. Absolutely. Jacqueline, we, we are almost at the end of, of this episode of Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. And it is amazing the wealth of information that I have learned about the topic of behavioral science applied to work culture. Uh, I, I'm impressed or, or still the 200 um, research papers that you have written, I'm still impressed because I have seen people work on one research paper for months. So it, I have seen tears of certain people that share the same house as, as me while doing a, a research paper. Anyways, um, Thank you very much for your time. And, and I wanted to ask you, so how do we do if somebody wants to reach you out and get to know a little bit more about behavioral science, about how could you how you could help them, help an organization to, to drive meaningful uh, change? Is there any website that they can reach you out? Thank you so much for that opportunity. And I definitely have the, the empathy with the struggles of, of publishing. And, and maybe I was so successful, but that potentially led to my burnout too. So, you know, we have to remember that these successes on paper don't necessarily reflect what's happening um, behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, for me, my um, website is leading real change that's leading hyphen real hyphen change.com and there you can find my free webinars um where you can learn about some of the things that uh, that you were inspired by to see whether um this is something that you want to learn more about i also do um free consultations because I, I love to be somebody's thought partner and get them feeling like oh i have more ideas i'm ready to go 
Um, and then if that leads to a um, longer term support, um, then that's that's fantastic. So those are the two best ways. And uh, um, people can listen to my podcast, but that's also on the website and that's um, leading real change as well. And uh, yeah, thank you for this interview. Thank you for your enthusiasm. And yeah, I could talk about this all day. Jacqueline, it was a pleasure. By the way, I'm going to be writing the link to your website, the link to the podcast, and definitely recommend this series of seminars that you have done very recently about, about change. So it was interesting, insightful, and entertaining. Thank you very much, Jacqueline, for your, for your time. Have a lovely evening. Thank you.